Good morning, church family. Thank you for braving the cold to join us uh, to worship this morning. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful that you are a God worth um, risking cold uh, and inconvenience to, to come and to worship and to learn and to be with your people. And we pray now that you would speak to us by your word and by your spirit, that you would help us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling as you will and work in us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, one of the great medical inventions of the past 100 years is a small device that is added to the body to make it function properly. And I'm referring to the implanted cardiac pacemaker. So millions of people, some of you are looking at each other like, you have one of those. Uh, Millions of people, perhaps some in this room, uh, whose hearts have stopped beating the way God intended for them to beat, have benefited from having this small device implanted under their skin. This device can tell when the heart is not beating properly, send an electrical pulse to help it beat the way it's supposed to. A pacemaker is something added to the body to help the body function properly and the whole body is better off as a result. Once in a while, however, a pacemaker can malfunction. Now, this is normally something that is easily and quickly fixed, so the body's still better off having this addition than it would be without it. But imagine if you had a pacemaker and it malfunctioned multiple times a day, causing dizziness, fainting, a fluttering heartbeat, The body would not benefit from the addition nearly as much as it needs to, and the overall health of the entire body would suffer. In the first three chapters of Ephesians, we saw, and then especially in the last two weeks in chapter 4, we saw that those who experience salvation by faith in Jesus are placed into the body of Christ, over which Jesus himself is the head. And last Sunday, we learned that the the growth or the building up of the body depends on every part of the body functioning properly within it. We see this in verses 15 and 16 of chapter 4. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into Him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. If you're a believer in Jesus, you play an essential part in the health and growth of His body. We are all depending on you, just like you're depending on us, so that together we can be what God intends for us to be. But the problem that Paul seems to be addressing in our passage for today is that there were people who had truly believed in Jesus, who had truly been saved from God's wrath, who were at least sometimes and in some ways living in a way that was harmful rather than helpful to the body that they had been made part of, perhaps like a pacemaker that misfires on a regular basis. So in today's passage, Paul writes to make sure that our lives consistently 
contribute to the good of the body, to do more harm and less, uh, sorry, I said that backwards in a very bad way, just making sure you're paying attention, (laughs) to do more good and less harm to the body of which he has graciously made us members. Now, to be fair, if you were listening closely to Wendell, you did not hear the word body in the passage that we're looking at today. So the first thing I want to do is convince you that Paul has not changed topics and that he's still talking about the unity and the proper working of this one body. That what he says here is not simply about how to help followers of Jesus be better people, even though it does do that. Uh, The best evidence, not the only evidence, but the best evidence that Paul is still talking about the proper working of the body is found in comparing verses 22 and 25. In verse 22, and we'll we'll get there, uh, Paul uses the phrase, lay aside the old self. And then in verse 25, he gives an example of how one lays aside the old self. And he forms a connection between today's passage and next Sunday's passage Um, by using the same kind of wording, laying aside falsehood. And the reason that he gives for doing this is that we are members of one another. So that's one body language, same concept that we saw last Sunday and the Sunday before. So forming a bond, a connection between the last two weeks, today's passage, and next Sunday's passage, they're all talking about how the body fits together and works together. Paul has not moved on to a new topic. Um, Starting in verse 25, next Sunday, he'll get very specific about how uh, some of the ways that we can function properly within the body of Christ. In our passage today, he gives some more general instructions to help us think correctly about the changed way of life that benefits the body of Christ. The main idea in today's passage is this, for the sake of Christ's body, the church, we must live the new life that God has made possible for us. We'll see today that God has made an invisible but incredibly significant change in those who have trusted in Jesus. That change makes it possible for his people to live lives that are very different from the lives they used to live, lives that contribute to the good of the whole body of Christ. So in the first three verses, we'll see that the old way of life can no longer be normal. Now, most Christians in Ephesus were Gentiles by birth. We saw that in chapter 2. They didn't grow up Jewish, which means they didn't grow up learning about God's faithfulness to His promises, His response to people's sins. Uh, They didn't grow up learning about God's commands, how His people are supposed to live in a way that is different from the other nations, different from the Gentiles, the ways that they should love their neighbors, and the way that they should love God, especially by worshiping Him alone. So we shouldn't be surprised that at least some of these Gentiles who had believed in Jesus, although Paul seems to be shying away from talking about them as Gentiles any longer, some of these Gentiles who had been placed into this one body of Christ continued to think and to act in ways that were normal for them before they believed in Jesus, in ways that were still normal to their neighbors, to non-Christian Gentiles. So Paul starts here in verse 17, 
So this I say and affirm together with the Lord that you walk or live no longer just as the Gentiles also walk. The way of life that used to be normal to you and is still normal to those around you can no longer be normal. It might have made sense for you to live that way in the past, but it doesn't make sense to live that way anymore. Now, before Paul tells us how the Gentiles were living, he tells us why they lived the way they did. And we see this in verses 17 and 18. And I want to point out at this point that throughout this passage, you'll notice a lot of references to the concept of knowledge, mind, ignorance, understanding, um, words like that. They remind us that knowledge of the truth is very important to the Christian faith and to the Christian life. But we're also reminded that we naturally, naturally lack both the knowledge that we need and the ability to get that knowledge. And finally, we're reminded that uh, we arrive at that knowledge by the gracious work of God through His Word and His Spirit. So those aren't the three points of the sermon. Those are just something to keep in mind as you notice these uh, references to the knowledge and to the mind. So notice, first of all, in verses 17 and 18, this piling up of phrases that describe the spiritual state of the Gentiles. Remember, this used to describe every one of us who has trusted in Jesus, and it still describes those who have not. We don't have the time to look at every one of these phrases in depth, but I hope that we feel the cumulative weight of the piling up of these phrases. So we see that the Gentiles lived in the futility of their mind. Their thoughts could not lead them to a knowledge of the one true God. We see that they're darkened in their understanding. This doesn't mean that a a non-Christian can't understand anything at all. Uh, He or she might be able to treat cancer or fix a car's engine or teach someone to read, but they can't understand the most important things about the one true God who has revealed himself through his son, Jesus Christ. We see that the Gentiles were excluded from the life of God. They're unable to experience the abundant and eternal life that God offers to those who believe in Jesus. They're excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. And this is not an innocent ignorance like someone who thought that Yosemite is pronounced Yosemite because they've never heard it pronounced, they've only read it. Or I guess the, the video going around now is uh, broccoli, if you've, if you've seen that, rather than broccoli. Uh, if you've never heard it, you have an excuse. But this is not an innocent ignorance. This is ignorance, Paul says, that results from their hardness of heart. Or as Paul says, where he elaborates more in Romans chapter 1, they had been exposed to a degree of truth about God through what God had made, through creation, and they chose to suppress that truth. They rejected the truth, and they preferred what was not true. So these verses, 17 and 18, describe the natural spiritual state of those who have not trusted in Jesus. So verse 19 then describes the way of life that results very naturally and understandably from that spiritual state. It says, And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. Their hard hearts grew 
calluses. Now, calluses are good if you play the guitar because they let you play music without too much discomfort, but a calloused heart is not good. Our hearts were meant to feel, to feel conviction when we're planning to do something wrong, to feel concern for others who might be affected by our actions. A calloused heart, and remember, all hearts are calloused apart from God's intervention. A calloused heart makes a person more likely to do whatever they want without regard for God and without regard for others. And Paul writes that Gentiles, people in their natural spiritual state, because of their calloused hearts, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. In other words, the natural and normal result of a heart that loses sensitivity to right and wrong and to the good of others is to make one's own pleasure, um, their own good, or what they think is their own good, most important. One of the commentaries I read this week said it this way, Paul is not depicting every unbeliever as an axe murderer. He is simply, he is simply very technical language from a commentary. Um, he's simply making the theological statement that apart from a connection to Christ, all people are self-oriented, not God-oriented. People are naturally driven by self-interest, even if that self-interest is sometimes dressed up in morality. That self-interest is never fully satisfied, so they continually pursue it. So Paul uses the phrase, with greediness. Verses 17 to 19 provide a very sobering description of the natural spiritual condition of every person. They explain how a self-oriented life, which is expressed in sinful and destructive behaviors, is the natural, normal result of that condition. Before we trusted in Jesus, we didn't have a choice to live differently. That's why this way of living seemed so normal. But because verses 17 to 19 no longer accurately describe those who have trusted in Jesus, we can no longer think of this way of life as normal. That's why Paul starts by saying, walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk. So as we think about how to live a life, uh, a new life that is helpful and not harmful, I got it right this time, to the body of Christ, we should start by asking if there are things that we know are wrong, things that we know we shouldn't do, but we allow ourselves to continue to do them because we think they're just normal. We'll see some specific examples of those things in next week's passage, but for now, thinking generally, um, are there things that you do or think about or look at that you know God says are wrong, but you allow yourself to do them because you think it's normal to do or think about or look at these things? Or are there ways that you talk to or about other people, maybe a spouse or a child? or kids and teenagers, uh, do you maybe talk to a parent or to a teacher or a friend in a way that you could not justify by pointing to the Bible, but you do justify by pointing to what other people around you are doing? Don't let your old way of life or the present way that other people live define for you what is normal. What used to be normal can no longer be normal. Not only because God's 
commands now define what should be normal for us, but because the good of others in the body of Christ, of which we are now members, depends on us living in a new way, or as Paul puts it, no longer walking as Gentiles walk. By the way, if you're here today and you have not yet put your faith in Jesus for salvation, please know that this sobering description of life apart from Jesus is something that God wants to set you free from. Chapter 2 of Ephesians told us about how God wants to rescue us from his own wrath, his angry judgment, and chapter 4 tells us that he wants to rescue us from a spiritual darkness that makes it impossible to live the kind of life that God created us to live. So, so far we've seen that our old way of life can no longer be normal. In the next three verses, we'll see that the need to change can no longer be neglected. And Paul makes this point by reminding his audience of what they had already been taught. The expectation to live a new kind of life is not new information when they read Ephesians or when they hear Ephesians being read to them. The fact that they still needed to be told not to live like the Gentiles is a clue that at least some of them had been neglecting what they had been previously taught. So what is it that they had been taught? Paul says it in an interesting way, starting in verse 20. He says, but you did not learn Christ in this way. Paul makes a strong contrast between his audience, the you, and the Gentiles and how they lived. Paul's audience had learned Christ in a way that should not result in a self-oriented pursuit of pleasure that doesn't have any regard for God and for others. Notice Paul says, you did not learn Christ in this way. Remember, Christ is a title, not an alternative name for Jesus. It's the equivalent of Messiah, the promised descendant of David who will rule forever over a kingdom made up of both Jewish and Gentile believers. And the fact that this king died so that forgiven sinners could be included in that kingdom does not change the fact that he's still a king. Don't forget that. So as Paul taught about this Savior and King, he made it clear that faith in Jesus included submission to his kingly authority. So that meant obeying the king's laws, not in a way that earned salvation, um, but an obedience that demonstrates that we truly believe and submit to Jesus as Lord. So when Paul preached, he preached things like this in Acts 17. God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. Paul was in a position to know what his audience had been taught. And this is because either Paul had taught them himself or somebody that Paul taught then taught them. Paul knew that his audience had been taught the importance of turning away from sin to a life of obedience to Jesus. So he could give this reminder of what they had already been taught uh, for the sake of those who'd been neglecting turning away from certain sins. Now, if you happen to come to faith in Jesus without being taught that it's necessary to repent from your sin when you believe, please understand that this is not a new command. From the very beginning, to believe in Jesus included turning away from sin, and that learning or knowing Jesus was inseparable from learning or knowing His commands. Again, this does not mean that salvation is by works, but it does mean 
that a new way of living should mark the lives of all who believe in Him. Paul continues in verses 21 and 22, um, If indeed you have heard Him and have been taught in Him, just as truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit. After saying so confidently, you did not learn Christ in this way, Paul is not now raising the possibility that they did not learn Christ. When he says, if you heard him and have been taught in him, the idea is something like this. If you heard Jesus, and I know you did, and if you were taught in him, and I know you were, then you did not learn Christ in a way that leads to godless, self-centered, sensual living. Then Paul specifies the first of three things that they had been taught. They had been taught in verse 22 to lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit. They'd been taught that they must lay aside or take off like old dirty clothes the old self. Well, what is this old self? He describes it in two ways. First, he says it corresponds to their former manner of life. Whatever they're supposed to take off is related to their old way of life, the one they lived before putting their trust in Jesus. Second, the old self is being corrupted, and it's being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit or deceitful lusts. We can have strong desires for good things, but many strong desires are deceitful. They lie. They promise things that they cannot provide in order to entice people to sin and to keep on sinning. And this old self that we're taught to take off was being corrupted by these deceitful lusts. Now, most likely, Paul expects his audience to understand the old self to be this old way of life. When they heard the gospel and they learned to follow Jesus, they were taught to take off that old way of life, that old Gentile way of living for self and not for God and for others, a way of living that would not benefit the body of Christ. Since these are believers in Jesus, remember Paul calls them saints in the very first uh, verse of the letter, they had probably already taken off this old self as they'd been taught, but in a, in a way that still left some room for improvement, for further taking off of certain ways of living as they continue to become more like Christ. For the good of the body, of which they are a part, Paul reminds them of what they'd already been taught so they don't neglect the ways that they still need to turn away from old Gentile ways of living and to conform more to the teachings of Jesus. Now, if you've been following Jesus for a while, your life has probably changed in some really important ways. But what Paul does here is he challenges us to consider whether there might still be some areas of life where we've neglected the need to change. Paul, um, I just read that. Ha. Maybe it seems, maybe it has seemed too hard or too costly to change in certain ways. Or maybe there's some sin in your life that just uh, feels kind of harmless, so we haven't bothered to pursue change in that area. But Paul reminds us that if we've learned Christ the right way, 
then we learned, maybe quite a while ago, that every area of sin needs to be taken off. So if there is some area in which we've been neglecting the need to change, we learn here that the need to change, to get rid of remaining sinful patterns, can no longer be neglected. In the final two verses of our passage, we learn this. Uh, A bit more encouraging news, perhaps, that a new way of life is already possible. We had a hint of this in verses 17 to 19, the fact that Paul commands his audience to no longer lives like, to live like Gentiles implies that his audience, believers in Jesus, have the ability to live in a different way, a, a way that they could not live before they believed. But Paul makes it much more clear here. He continues to explain what they had already been taught. So in verse 21, you have been taught, verse 22, to lay aside or to take off the old self. And now in verse 23, you've been taught that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. So first we see that a new way of life is already possible because Paul said that they'd been taught to be renewed in the spirit of their minds. Remember, our natural state is characterized by futile minds, darkened understanding, and ignorance. But now Paul says, be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Our minds were in a hopeless condition, but now they can be made new. But we don't make them new. It says to be renewed or be made new. Someone else is making us new in the spirit of our minds. God is by means of His Holy Spirit. We submit to His renewing work. We make sure that we don't resist that work by continuing to indulge the desires of the old self that have that corrupting effect instead of the renewing effect that God wants for us. And second, we see that God has created a new self for us to put on in place of that old self that we were taught to take off. And since the old self is most likely referring to the old way of life in which unbelieving Gentiles were stuck, the new self must be a new way of life, not a self-oriented pursuit of pleasure that results from darkened understanding and a calloused heart. What's this new self like? Paul says that it's created in or according to the likeness of God. It's modeled after God Himself, not just in the ways that all people are created in the image of God. The new self, it says, is created in righteousness and holiness of the truth, or in true righteousness and holiness. This new self was created in a pure state, not a corrupted one, like like the... uh, the old self. It's in a state of true righteousness and holiness that makes it possible for us to live in a righteous and holy way, a way that not only reflects the righteousness and holiness of God Himself, but also that builds up the body of Christ. So earlier when we were talking about how the old way of life can no longer be normal and that our need to change can no longer be neglected, some of you might have felt discouraged, might have just kind of felt a weight piling on. You don't need to be reminded that you're supposed to change. You're well aware of the fact 
that some of the things that you do have a negative impact on your fellow Christians. Perhaps you've even tried to change, and it doesn't feel like you can make the change that you know you need to make. It might feel impossible, but Paul makes sure we know that it is possible, even if it doesn't feel like it. It's possible because God, who created the entire universe, has also created for each one of us a new self, a new way of life for us to put on. Now, the fact that a new way of life is possible does not mean that this new way of life is easy. If you struggle to take off certain aspects of your pre-Christian way of life, make sure that you know that your struggle is not a sign that it's impossible. Don't give up. Old habits die hard. Strong desires that were built up over time through indulging thoughts or actions don't typically become strong desires for opposite things immediately. If you've tried to pursue certain changes without success, keep trying. Grab brothers and sisters in Christ to pray for you, to encourage you, to keep you accountable. They probably need you anyway, and you'd be doing them a favor to pull them into your life. God cares even more than you and I do that our lives both reflect His righteousness and promote the good and the growth of Christ's body. So He's already created for each one of us a new self, a new way of life for us to put on. How do we put on the new self? Uh, Again, we'll see some very specific examples next week in the passage that Tom will preach. Um, But more generally, we can say a couple of things. One, that putting on the new self is more about choosing to do or not do certain things than it is about a change in how we feel. So don't wait until you feel differently to start living differently. Second, putting on the new self is motivated by a new concern for the good of Christ's body, which is a concern that understandably did not exist in us before we experienced salvation. Now, one of the things I love about Ephesians is the way that it gives us some rare glimpses of the scope of what God is doing through Jesus. We learn that God is saving individuals from eternal punishment, but He's doing more than that. We learn that God is making individuals more like Jesus, but He's doing more than that. We learn, especially in chapter 4, that God is building a unified, properly functioning body made up of individuals who believe in Jesus, but He's doing even more than that. God's plan, as we saw in chapter 1, is to bring everything in the universe into conformity with the purpose of His will, and to bring everything in the universe under the headship or the authority of His Son, Jesus. God's plan has a universal scope. For His glory, He's going to bring everything in the physical universe, everything in the unseen spiritual realm together under the authority of His Son, Jesus. And in chapter 3, we saw that the church, this one body of Christ, is at the center of God's plan for the universe. And then He made us a part of that body. That's why it's so important that the body and its parts function properly. Each one of us has been given an incredibly important job to do in the body of Christ. And the more that we leave behind the sinful attitudes 
and self-oriented actions of our old life, the more we live out the new life that God has created for us, the better we'll be at this incredibly important job that serves the body that is at the center of God's plan for the universe. From our passage today, we see that living a life that does the most good for the whole body requires us to no longer think that the old self-oriented way of life is normal, no matter how normal it used to be for us or how normal it still is for the world around us. Now, if that self-orientation shows up in obviously sinful actions, we must turn away from those sins. If that self-orientation has prevented us from being generous with our time or money, if it's kept us from looking for ways to serve others, we must turn toward others, especially our fellow Christians, and begin to pursue their good more diligently. Living a life that does the most good for the whole body requires that we no longer neglect the changes we already know that we should make. If we've been dragging our feet, when it comes to laying aside aspects of our old lives and putting on the new life, it's time to renew that pursuit of change. If up to now you've had trouble finding a good enough reason to lay aside those things that remain from your old way of life, look around this room. Go ahead. Everybody look so we nobody feels guilty. Uh, I'm looking because I'm one of the, the foot draggers here. Here's your good enough reason, right here among you. Finally, living a life that does the most good for the whole body requires believing the truth, the new way of life is possible. That is great news, not just for you, but for all of us. God has made it possible for us to live the life that he calls us to. And, like I said, it won't be easy. It might be a struggle. And you might need to grab other people and get their help along the way. But it's not impossible because God has already created a righteous and holy new way of life for us to put on. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful that you don't just intend to save us from your judgment but that you intend to make us like your son Jesus and that you intend to make our lives a blessing to your other children. So Lord, I pray that you would help each of us to know how we can leave behind more than we already have the old sinful way of life, the old self-oriented way of life that we had and that we can pursue your will for the good of your people. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.